Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Yay! We should have totally recorded that lovely conversation about musicals, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) That would have made a lovely intro to my podcast. Really getting to know me there. I think we'll go back on. Yeah, I'm going to steer you back to the musical somehow. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very excited to be chatting to you because I didn't think this was going to happen, obviously, because we are in the middle of a pandemic. um, But we're not going to dwell on that too much in this podcast. But um, we weren't going to do this like in real life, but we're we're having to do it over the internet and that's lovely although I'm a bit concerned that you can see me and I can't see you Scott Nina oh that's terrible (laughs) (laughs) I'm just in my pajamas that's what it is you're in your jammies and I'm delighted to have you on my podcast and I will say that I can't believe it I'm talking to a Paralympian (laughs) thank you that's That's awesome good to to, to finally catch up and unfortunately not doing it in person and we have a couple of connections which I didn't realize at first but we're like we know a couple of people or we've met a couple of people who have like been on the podcast and um, and I know that's obviously your uh, military connection um, and my dance troupe but we don't know each other we've never met each other so this is exciting to be talking to you um, I actually listened to another podcast that you were on last year that was Nashi's podcast it was yeah get after it with Nashi yeah, actually, I listened to it the other day there again, just to remind myself. And um, I think I just contacted you at the time because I was just really impressed by how you told your story and obviously about your story. I was just thoroughly impressed by everything that you've done thus far. Uh, and I just reached out to you to say, I thought that was brilliant. And then you kindly were like, I'll come on your podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, it was a lot of fun to do that with uh, with Nashi a while back. And um, strange, it was really strange because it had been a quick quite a tough part of my life I was going through a wee bit of a tough stage at that time and I wasn't feeling 100% me or 100% positive and I was a wee bit reluctant to go on and do that podcast but funnily enough like by doing that by sitting down and actually chatting about some of the kind of stories and the journey that you've been on it it actually brought me into a better place again because it just helped me kind of realign things so it was a pretty cool cool experience yeah, that's lovely. A lot of people actually say that it's quite cathartic to look back um, and just think about everything that's happened and discuss it and put it all out there. But um, like people have said to me, oh, you should do like a podcast on you. And I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I totally commend you for for doing that then because you certainly couldn't tell on, on the podcast that you were going through anything at the time so um, I commend you for doing it even though you were a bit reluctant and not feeling at your your best at that time. Oh, thank you it was uh, yeah it was Nash is a good lad he, he, oh my god he like he's always up to something every day I go and I, I'm in my bed and I'm scrolling through Instagram and there he is he's in the sea with his dog <laughs> or he's upside down in a tree or I'm like change yeah. oh man. Every day I'm just like what is he doing now like <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I'm talking to you, who's the Paralympian, who's like super fit, and obviously you'll be keeping yourself busy in lockdown, I would imagine. Yeah, very much so. I'm very fortunate to have put a lot of time into building a home gym about this time last year. Um, I got home after my season and, and decided to try and 
bring training as close to home as possible and to try and really limit the amount of time I spend in my car driving to and from a lot of the training venues. Um, so I'm very fortunate, you know, that that gym that we built last year is now worth its weight in gold because now that my training programs kind of kicked off again and, and actually the life of a Paralympic athlete is not that far away from this isolated lockdown life. You know, you spend a lot of time training alone with your own thoughts and it's a it's a long pre-season. Um, so strangely enough, this lockdown period is, apart from the odd social um, and catch up with some friends, it's kind of business as usual for me and not much has changed. Well, that's good. I'm glad something's thriving in lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I've I've written down some notes, which I always do, and I rarely look at them. But um, I, and I don't tend to to want to go chronological with people because that's not always the best way. But um, obviously, sports a massive thing in your life. But was that always the case? Yeah, I think from a very young age, uh, sport had a really positive influence in most of the things I've done. Um, and actually, probably one of the most important times in my life is times I talk about probably the most rarely um, are my kind of formative years living in Cumbernauld, whereas kind of where I grew up, there was a there was a lot of opportunities to kind of be distracted by kind of going down the, the wrong paths and getting into the wrong gangs and there was a lot of that going on, all the kind of young team stuff and and at that time I'd, I'd started playing rugby and uh, been able to go to the rugby club a couple of times a week and like knock lumps out of somebody and not get lifted for it <laughs> was actually quite a good outlet for me but also it was fantastic in terms of the, the kind of peer group that was there like a lot of the kind of as a young lad I was exposed to playing sport with grown men and they taught me a lot of the kind of values of the sport but also a lot of values of life you know in terms of whether it's turning up on time dressing appropriately you know dressing smart showing respect for people and also realizing that uh in, in the world you know no matter how big you get there's always somebody bigger and I think it's good lessons to learn when you're young. It's so beneficial, I think, for young people to find something like, you know, a sport or a hobby or a passion that they can just get themselves totally immersed in. And yeah, like you say, just have some sort of focus, other people to answer to, to step up for, be part of a team and be that team player. Yeah, definitely. We, we learn so much from that. And yeah, the, the life skills that can be can be taught through sport are, are so special and it's so important, especially in your younger years. And I would say especially in the, the team sport environment. Absolutely. So then when you were at school, were you thinking, uh, you know, I want to be a professional rugby player? Um, it did cross my mind when I was younger. Uh, and I did try really try my hand at kind of taking my rugby more seriously. However, I think my, my kind of size and stature wasn't doing me any favours. Um, but also I think I had definitely had a kind of burning desire to serve something slightly bigger. I really wanted to be part of the armed forces. I wanted to serve my country. And and from the youngest age, I couldn't imagine any job in the world worth being more proud of doing. Uh, so I always aspired to that. And my rugby coaches used to go mental because they'd be trying to put me on these weightlifting programs to put some pounds on and to get bigger and stronger. And and I started losing weight. And uh, what I didn't tell them is the fact that after all these weightlifting sessions, I was going out and running 40 or 50 miles a week to just train for the parachute regiment. <laughs> a big heavy rucksack yeah. one. <laughs> so I was built with a side of a fibre. <laughs> I love it. But again, like just that focus to do something else. You're obviously quite a driven person and, and have been from a young age that, you know, when you set yourself 
you know, you're eyeing the prize or you're eyeing a goal, you're going to achieve it. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think I, I feel very fortunate from, from a young age. I've been quite a, quite a curious, quite a driven person. And I think once I put my mind to something, uh, I'm, I'm not easily stopped. Um, <laughs> plenty of my teachers tried very hard to, to keep me my attention in the school gates and to keep my mind in there. But once I once I had my, my eyes set on where I wanted to be, you know, I was there was no stopping me. Um, so so yeah, I'm definitely pretty determined in that sense. So you did achieve that goal, and you went on to join the armed forces. I did, yeah. Um, and I'm very much a one for kind of like plan A. Don't 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 have a contingency plan. Just go straight up the middle. Oh, right. Um, right. And, uh, from school, I I left and joined the army at 15 and nine months. And I went to the Army Foundation College in Harrogate, where I spent the first kind of year of my military training. Had a fantastic experience there, uh, doing some further education as well as my military training. But one of my kind of biggest life lessons came just after uh, I passed out of the, the Army Foundation College. I, I was home and leave and played a game of rugby and, and, and dislocated my shoulder in a bad tackle. And uh, when I turned up for work on the Monday morning in the military, uh, the doctor, kind of on duty at the time, basically said, if you've, you've dislocated, dislocated your shoulder and if that's happened before, then uh, you're, you're out of here. Um, so within like a couple of weeks, you know, I was living my absolute dream. I was only 17. But within a couple of weeks of reporting sick, I was back in Cumberland Old and my military career was over very, oh very God. prematurely. Uh, so that was really tough. Probably one of the kind of harder times of my life where, it, again, it could have gone one way or the other. I found myself a bit lost because kind of everything I'd ever wanted to be was gone again. And, and so uh, young, do you know what I mean? Like not having had much life experience before that, just being totally set on the goal and on that path and just, you know, immersing yourself in it and giving it your all, like to then be told no at that age you must just be like well what, what else is there yeah yeah it was a really tough one to swallow um because it was quite a kind of definitive no you're done and not many people who get medically discharged from the army get back in but it was funnily it was again it was sport that helped me find focus and a bit of clarity through that and I started playing probably some of my better rugby and actually through doing that um and through going to college and, and, and playing rugby at a decent level I developed kind of the confidence the the education and also the kind of physiology um, mm-hmm. to, to actually challenge the decision uh, and reapply and, and really kind of fight my case to, to rejoin, um, which actually accumulated to me at a, at a doctor's appointment to, with this like, kind of specialist down in North Allerton. And I went to get the train down to see him from Edinburgh Haymarket and uh, it was a roasting hot day. And, and you know this the usual thing in Scotland, when it's a hot day in Scotland, the trains get cancelled. <laughs> so, so I missed my train. And uh, I was running really, really late. And I got to this train station in North Allerton and it's roasting hot. And I'm wearing jeans and a pair of Timberland boots. And I don't have a clue where this hospital is. So I just run onto the main road and just start running up through the town, following road signs for the hospital. Right. I finally find this place and bust into the office and uh, eventually end up doing as many press-ups as I can on the floor of this guy's doctor's office. And he, he just looks at me and he's like, you really want this, don't you? Um, so, so that was one hand, got... one's in that in oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's like something a film. Honestly, it was it was crazy. Um, I was just a sweaty mess. And <laughs> and I think he must have just took a bit of pity on me and went, you really want this? And he just he gave me the big rubber stamp and, and let me ah. back in and get on with my career. And... Oh, my God, I've actually got goosebumps. Think about that. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. 
it was awesome. Um, it was pretty tough because, you know, bear in mind, I'd, I'd spent a kind of year and a half in the army, but because of the way I was kind of rejoining, because of the regiment I was joining, I had to go back to week one, day one. I had to oh go back God. to the very start and go do basic training from week one. Just shows you so much determination, just like eyeing the prize. Like you're saying, there's no plan B. Sorry, no can do. Yeah, definitely. I just like kind of threw all the other plans out the window and went just kind of route one. And I actually had that approach with my military training as well as like, I cannot, I cannot fail. I cannot be back squatted. I need to do this now or never. There's no other way. I'm just going to, and I have to, I have to succeed. I have to pass it. And I think probably that, almost that kind of deal that I made with myself helped spur me on some of the tougher times. So you, you joined the second battalion, so the parachute regiment? Yes. Yeah, two para. So that's like the elite. Yeah, they're a pretty, um, a pretty, pretty formidable unit. Mm. Um, they're, they're an amazing level of soldiering. Um, and here's when I say I spent twelve months in the army beforehand, I expected to turn back up and for it to be a scoosh because I was going back the week one day one, and I was like, oh, I've done this all before. But I tell you what, from the minute you get through those gates, it's so different. You know the way that they conduct themselves every single day. You know the standards they hold, the the kind of values that they live by. You are just constantly under the cosh, and you train for the absolute worst all the time. So our, our motto is ready for anything, and they truly train by it. Yeah, because I've had this conversation with Sir Alistair Hutton. Yep, Alistair Hutton's a a, a bit of a, a an idol of mine. Yeah, amazing guy. The, the voice of the tattoo. My my oh favorite my podcast that he done, Lisa. Oh, cheers. Oh, I mean, what is he like? That voice alone. What a man. I want him to come and read me bedtime stories. <laughs> no, totally. He'd be <laughs> awesome at that. <laughs> but yeah, I remember him alluding to the, the motto. And it sounds like you, Scott, are just like living by that motto every day. <laughs> yeah, I try, I try to not go too crazy with it now. You know, it's, it's good to have a bit of stability in your life. But I think the ability to kind of be... To, to be ready for anything and to be able to kind of absorb whatever kind of chaos comes your way in life is a, is a really good um, kind of attitude to have, you know, especially I think that, yeah, we, we use that role to um, to help us in combat situations. But actually, I think a lot of the lessons the regiment have taught me have set me up for so much more in my life and helped me cope with some of the biggest hurdles that have come my way. I've got a lot to be thankful for. So how long were you in that regiment for then? So you do your kind of six months uh, initial training in Paradepo, then you go off to Bryce Norton, throw you out of a plane a few times and slap a set of wings on your arm. And uh, and then I joined my battalion in Colchester um, and spent kind of 10 months prior to an operational tour in Afghanistan. So I actually joined the unit just as they were starting to ramp up to go to war, which was actually a really exciting time to join a, a fighting unit because mm. a great chance to just get stuck into the really really kind of meaty bit of soldiering um, and also to cut your teeth around some really hardened kind of combat veterans and and I wanted to spend as much time kind of proving myself to those guys but also earning their trust and learning from them. Yeah, so all in kind of about a year in the battalion before we deployed uh, and then about four months into the operational tour in Afghanistan that's when I, uh, things went a bit sideways. Yeah, and I, when I was listening to Nash's podcast, am I right in saying that you were saying a lot of people don't necessarily understand exactly what your role is when you are 
you know, over in these places, like a lot of it is like helping communities and that the work that you do is so extensive. It isn't just necessarily what people would imagine a war zone is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of what we've done was um, actually engaging with the local community, getting to understand the rhythm of life out there and, and what the, the needs of the people were. And something we tried to offer was um, a lot of kind of infrastructure projects. You know, we tried to bring kind of running water to, you know, get a well built in local towns and create, you know, means for people to irrigate their land properly and um, and create community centres and projects for um, a lot of the young children. Um, mm. Funnily enough, I never in my wildest dreams as a combat soldier thought my job would be to walk children to school in the morning. Oh my goodness! So uh, actually, a lot of the the young kids in the local area going to the local schools. Um, we were we were there kind of escort. Unfortunately, in these uh, a lot of these countries, um, there's, there's people who don't believe that, especially young women, should be allowed an education, and they went to quite big lengths to to stop that. Um, so part of our job was to try and safeguard kind of young children, especially young females, and allow them to the right to read and write. We also provided a lot of medical and um, kind of almost like humanitarian aid. You know, we, we yeah. identified uh, local families who have been a mother who was not allowed to work, who was maybe widowed, ah, and our okay. children were going hungry. So we'd identify them and kind of subtly find ways to supply them with food. Jesus. So one of them, actually, one of these, had a, I was a kind of team medic in my unit, and uh, there, was a, there was a young lad who presented at the checkpoint one day. We burst his hand open. And I came in and I cleaned the wound and kind of dressed it and sent him on his way. And I sent him on his way with some like sweeties and some a wee bag of rice and you know some supplies. And next next thing I knew, the next day he was back with his brother who'd burst his hand open again. You know they're so unfortunate. You know they literally have nothing. But what a fascinating place. You know and some some of the kindest, most true souls I've ever met in my life. And it was such a kind of enlightening experience. You know and it wasn't. It wasn't all um, kind of helicopters and combat and going into that. I guess people tell you what it's going to be like, or you know, but until you're there, until you're actually experiencing it, it must have just been like mind blowing at times. Yeah, very much so. And I think I had to kind of shift my priorities each each day. You know, obviously every day we had to be absolutely ready to to fight our way out of any dangerous situation at any time, but. Actually, my priority became kind of feeling the pulse of the local community, getting to know the locals, getting to know the language. I was the kind of smiling soldier. Um, they they absolutely loved my name because uh, it's Scott um, kind of in Pashtun is sweet and Mina oh. is love. <gasps> right? So I was known as Sweet Love in Pashtun. Oh, my so the children would be chasing me down the street shouting Scott Mina, Scott Mina <laughs> so uh, which always cracked a laugh and it was nice that and actually in a kind of another way like the more the local community get to know you they get to know your name they get to care about you the more likely they're going to be to tell you if someone came and planted a device on an alleyway that night or something so the community started to kind of look out for us um if we ever did get in a firefight or in a bit of trouble, normally we would come back to our checkpoint and find members of the community hanging around to make sure that we were okay. And they would often give us bread that they'd made. And these amazing people who had very little to give themselves went to great lengths to to give and to protect us. Um, so it, was, it was a really um, kind of really special time in my life. And 
think to experience that at 21 years old was a real privilege. Yeah, and this is the thing. These are the stories that you don't always get to hear. And I actually feel really privileged that you've told me that, you know, because these are the, the stories that really matter and that you realise there are people all over the world experience all matter of things. But, you know, it's always the people with the least that will give the most. Oh, absolutely. I think it, it taught me what being, there's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. And some of the richest people I've ever met haven't got a penny to their name. You know, they've just got goodness to give in abundance, good souls. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you were out there really making a difference to people's lives, like as, as best you could, you know, in the situation that you were in. But then um, obviously there was a fateful day where your life was changed. Yeah, um, unfortunately, you know, it comes with the, the, the territory and with the job. There were times that we we, we were facing some pretty, uh, some, some pretty hardy fighters. Um, we didn't agree with, you know, rightly or wrong with some of the principles we were trying to introduce to the country and some of the ways of thinking. We were, you know, a bit, a bit more of a kind of diplomatic um, system we were trying to introduce and people didn't agree with it. So inevitably we, we, we got into the odd scrap and, uh, yeah, and the, as you've all kind of heard in, in the, the news, the, the weapon of choice, and which was very effective, was the improvised explosive device. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, whilst on patrol, uh, one um, one day, actually Burns Day, uh, 25th of January uh, 2011, uh, I, I my work ran out and I stepped on one of these devices. And listening to your story on Nash's podcast, I actually don't have the words for what you went through and what you did even on that day. You were totally compassment of the whole time. Yeah. And you, like, um, you were saying that you'd turn the kids your own injuries and everything. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what you... It's amazing what you do when kind of being strong is your only choice. Um, do you know, I think I couldn't, I couldn't believe how quickly your brain can process what's going on. You know, I, I kind of started to take the steps back down the track where I'd just come from and all of a sudden felt myself kind of being lifted up in the air and, uh, and being a soldier who was carrying probably the weight of a teenager on my back at that on that day, um, that was that was not natural to be lifted up, up in the air so so easily. And I just knew that something bad had happened. And I hit the deck before it even went bang. And I just thought, I can't believe I've gone and died. And that was it. That's all I thought. Um, it's a bit like sometimes when you sit in a car and the boot gets slammed while you're sat inside it, you feel that kind of rush of air as the air kind of gets sucked out before that bang. And that's what the, the blast felt like. It just felt like all the air in the area just got sucked out and then this massive thump. And I just lay there for a moment thinking, I can't believe I've gone and died. And I just waited for everything to kind of shut down. Um, they say that kind of time slows down, but everything very much moved into kind of slow motion. Um, my ears were ringing. I couldn't hear anything. And I looked down, my arm was kind of hanging open. Both my legs were completely gone. And I thought to myself, I actually just kind of thought, this must be what it feels like to die. And I was just kind of waiting for the, I just waited for everything to kind of settle down and quiet. And it was actually quite a comforting feeling. I actually felt like I was in a bath. It was very warm and quite comfortable. But then all of a sudden, just reality, just just like a, just just out of nowhere, this reality came back in and things went from being slow motion to like ultra HD. And I just remember lying on my back looking at this, beautiful big blue sky above my head and thinking okay I've got a chance like 
now it's in my the ball's back in my court, and that's when the training kicks in. And I literally just sat up and thought, if I stay calm, I won't bleed this fast. So I got my tourniquets out, started just dressing the wounds, got on my radio and said, "Listen, lads, don't rush in. I'm stopping the bleeding." And I basically just tied the, tied the legs up, curled up in a ball and held them up in the air as much as I could and then just waited. It, it's amazing um, how that training that you, you, you do so rigidly really kicks in when it matters um, and the presence of mind that is available when when the chips are truly down. And I think, um, but the thing is, is I, I was exactly the same as most other people. I always said, you know, if I stand on one of these things, just put me out of my misery, you know, but actually when it happens you don't realize the depths that you'll go to to be alive i didn't care what disability i had or injury or if i could hear or see or whatever i just wanted to go home i wanted to see my mom again i wanted to see my family and uh, that was that just drove me on that is incredible actually having the words just like you're saying it obviously is the training that just kicks in and it could never have imagined that you would need to have used it to that level but thank god you were able to it was able to kick in when you needed it most and and obviously your comrades around you were there and able to to whiz you out of there and get you the treatment that you needed yeah um and and again that's i think i I put that down as a real testament to to the fortitude and the the ability of the the paratroopers that i serve with because they they never skipped a beat and yeah they were they were, they were wounded in a, a, another device. Um, so by extracting me, they, they initiated another blast, which wounded every man carrying that stretcher and, and unfortunately killed a member of my patrol. Yeah, um, sorry to hear that. It's awful. But the boys, as I said, you know, wounded, blind, whatever injuries they'd sustained, they still grabbed hold of themselves and got the task completed. And uh, I think that's a real testament to the to the, the ethos that we have as paratroopers. So we we strive on being comfortable in that chaos and being able to make it through absolutely everything and anything. Um, and I think we're very very proud to have come out of that day. Um, although much it, it hurt a lot, but I think we can look back on the way that we conduct ourselves and and be proud. Amazing, amazing story, and you know obviously been involved in some military events and we had a, a friend that was in the military and served and um, I'm just always amazed at that kind of essence of family that everyone has just got everyone else's back and obviously that's what kicked in when you needed it most and you're here and telling the tale and doing amazing things and it's just outstanding it's you know it's such a credit to, to our country it really is like the armed forces. Yeah I think it's, it's something that I feel incredible, incredibly privileged to have been a part of um, and to, to have been part of something that was so much bigger than I was and to serve the purpose that I feel was, was truly just. Um, it's something that I feel that even just for some of the small tasks and the, some of the small wins that they'll never be reported in the newspaper, but I, I seen, you know, changes in that country. That yeah. was you. That was the one you did. Yeah, and that's, I think those are the things that, you know, I, I never have any kind of resentment against my injury or, you know, because at the end of the day I was, I was there for a reason and, and actually I feel that there was there was 10 reasons every single day that justified my reason for being there to me. Yeah, those yeah. Wee boys cleaned their wounds and gave them bags of rice and sweeties and the kids running down the street calling you sweet love, you know. <laughs> that, that, that stuff makes, you know, a difference, a world of difference that you'll... 
he'll never even be able to really know the extent of, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. And I think the power, it really made me realise the power of education and the real privilege that we have to, to have it almost as a given. Um, yes. The kids are literally fighting for it. And like we were there to give a young girl the right to read a book so she could make her own mind up about how this world works. You know, that, that for me is worth its weight in gold. You know, you um, it, was, it was special. Absolutely. So that was 2011? Yeah. So jump forward to 2020 and uh, just like the accolades and the things you're achieving just are absolutely mind-blowing. Like I'm sitting here with a list going, right, okay. So first of all, paranordic skiing. Yep. Not a phrase that I have said before. But this <laughs> is the story that is this podcast. This is a total education for me. So I know that you first your you you know your first choice of sport was rowing. Is that right? Obviously, aside, yeah. from the, aside from the rugby. So the rowing did that come from like your rehabilitation, like after your accident and stuff? Yeah, um, I'd I'd actually picked rowing up uh, after my kind of rehab, more as a bit of a kind of get me fit, get me strong, get me doing something again. And I was very very fortunate to to bump into a coach at the Scottish Rowing Centre, a guy called John Blair. He's actually another world that's collided. There's uh, Mr Parsonage, who you spoke to at the Clyde. What a, what a gentleman. Oh, my uh, goodness, that man. Yeah. He's just an absolute gen. What a guy. Oh, he really is. So I embarked on a wee journey down into the, the world of rowing. And um, initially it started off as just that I, I said to this coach, I need a reason to go out of my bed every day. I want to come up. And I want to train with you. I don't care where it takes us. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I just want to get better at something. Uh, and I really enjoyed rowing because it's so physically demanding. It's such mm. a tough sport and it's such a, you know, it's, it's such an honest sport. If you haven't done the training, the numbers won't lie. You can't blag it. You can't, there's no luck in the sport of rowing. So I think it was a really good lesson for me into the world of competitive sport again. And also it kind of really educated me on the, the commitment that it truly takes to be good at something and it allowed me just to pour all my effort and energy back into it uh, and into something in my life and I was I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with the, the Great Britain rowing team going that kind of journey training with like some of the best Olympians in the world and Paralympic athletes on the way to 2020, uh, 2016 uh, Rio Paralympic Games which unfortunately I, I came short of the mark and I never made the games but I learned so much on the way. Mm. But did you not do the Invictus Games? I did, yes. So the Invictus Games were um, 2014, 2016 mm-hmm. and 2017. Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to take part in those, which on a completely different kind of strand, Invictus Games like truly show the value of sport because it isn't about mm-hmm. who's winning. It isn't about the highest performer. It's about the fact of sport truly giving people purpose and sport being a medicine. And some of the biggest wins I've seen at the Invictus Games were guys who got made it onto the start line, people who stepped into the arena. And, and literally, you were watching people change their lives there and then. And that was something I feel very, very thankful to be a part of. And also, the Invictus Games was a great platform for me to step onto the more competitive environments and also really inspired me, you know, that, that kind of coliseum-type environment. To be able to, I just got bitten by the bug, competitive sport. Um, and yeah, and on to Paranordic, uh, I'd actually been given the opportunity to go to the Sochi Winter Paralympic Games in 2014 as a bit of an inspiration 
uh, for the next kind of generation of Paralympic athletes. And that's where I've seen this sport, Paranordic. And it was actually an American athlete called Oksana Masters, who's just an incredible, incredible human being. Like her story would just blow you away. She's a, another double amputee and hands down one of the strongest athletes period I've ever met. You know, she absolutely smashes the men on her circuit. She's just, she's amazing. And she'd done this sport, which is like essentially kind of Mario Karts on snow. You know, it's like sitting in a seat with a pole in each arm, dragging yourself up and down hills, uh, doing a bit of biathlon, so you're skiing and shooting targets. So you, you ski three kilometres around the course, up and down hills, and then you slide into a range and you need to shoot five targets that are the size of your thumbnail while your heart's like beating out your chest. And for every, for every target you miss, they make you do an extra 100 metres penalty loop. Uh, what? So you can imagine it's such a kind of mental sport because you can be skiing really what? well but then have this like shocker of a shoot. So it's very mentally challenging, which I love. <laughs> you had a glutton for punishment. Just pick the sport that's like the hardest <laughs> thing ever. I did a hip workout the other night there and I'm still recovering. <laughs> so, but you obviously just totally thrive on it. You just absolutely love it. I mean, you have to, you know, the, the, the amount of training, obviously you touched on the fact that you train a lot at home and stuff now. I can't even imagine where you begin to train for something like that, you know, especially if you're looking ahead to, to particular competition. What is the regime like? Have you, have you had something recently that you've taken part in that you can kind of talk us through what was involved leading up to that? Um, so our, our winter season has just kind of come to a, a bit of a premature end um, mm-hmm. in the middle of March. But we normally race from kind of December, or not sorry, November through to March. But our pre-season lasts from May till November. So it's mm-hmm. a long period where you're home in the summer and you're training two to three times a day, kind of six, probably normally about six days a week for all these events that happen five, six, seven, eight, nine months away. So yeah, so the discipline in that alone, you know what I mean? Like, Definitely, you know, like, yeah. like, you're like, oh, it's all right, it's November, say just a week. <laughs> yeah, and that, that sneaks up on you quickly in sport. Um, so you have to train diligently all the time because you just know that someone else is out there working just as hard and harder than you are. So uh, unlike a sport like rugby or football, where if you if you get it wrong on race day, you've got next week to make up for it. Like we've got a year, and then when it comes to the Paralympics, you've got four years in between every opportunity to do that. So the amount of attention, the detail, and effort that goes into just building those performances. So um, yeah, you can imagine my, my training. Uh, exists of a, a lot of long kind of aerobic miles. I do a lot of that around my home. I do it around Cumbernauld. I use the canal a lot, so I do a lot of my long sessions on the canal. I've got a little kind of this board that's basically like a skateboard that I've put my my set ski rig onto. So basically, it means I can ski the way I would on snow, but do it on tarmac. And I do a bit of hand cycling. I run a lot on the track. Um, enter some ten k races in the summer to keep me racing. Uh, so yeah, I keep myself very busy and yeah, keeps me going. Gosh, and how was that last season that you were involved in? Yeah, I had a pretty good season. Um, I didn't have any massive expectations as I picked up a, a nasty injury uh, last kind of September, October time. Um, so I was still kind of returning back to full training while the season was going on. But funnily enough, I actually managed to get my one of my, my best ever results last season. It was a one-off um, seventh place in a, a biathlon at the World Cup. So oh my be, God, that's amazing. Yeah, there's normally kind of 40 or 50 guys on the start line and to be anywhere within the top 10, 
and any day of the week is a bit of an achievement because the, the standard of these guys is phenomenal. Um, so I feel really, really proud to, to kind well of... Well done, that's awesome. The days that I can kind of rub shoulders with those guys, I'm, I'm pretty happy. So what what's next? Are you always just looking ahead to like the next challenge, the next achievement that you can can meet them? Yeah, very much so. So now we're at the kind of early stage of our season. Um, we're starting to put training back together, starting to make some training goals. Um, we're like a fully fledged um, program. So our, our, we've got coaching staff, we've got physiotherapist, physiologist, strength and conditioning coach, and we've got a ski coach who kind of writes the the, the kind of stead, like the actual ski program. Um, so mm. a lot of members of staff support us and, and kind of help us build our training and periodize it. So yeah, but at the moment we're just building back into the general phase of getting fit, and you know, and we're going to be doing a lot of long miles um, through the summer with some testing. And and what I'm trying to do is throw in some. Unfortunately, with the lockdown, it's quite hard to. But I was hoping to do some kind of athletics running. You know, going to do some ten k's, some five k's, some track sessions. Um, unfortunately, just for the, the lockdown, um, I'm still doing those sessions, but just very much on my own. The coaches are brilliant, and although we're quite a remote program, because um, our athletes are spread across the country and everything's done quite remotely, we generally spend a lot of time on training camps. We spend probably 12 to 14 weeks every year out the country together. So we go oh, on camps and spend a lot of time abroad. Even through the summer, we go to the Alps and spend time at altitude and train out there. So we'll be missing those sort of things this year. But actually next week, we're having a, a virtual training camp. So we'll be doing a high training load and just doing a couple of sessions on Zoom together every day. So Brilliant. Totally so, adapted to the situation. Uh, like, no slacking. <laughs> and, you know, I would imagine that telling your story, obviously, you know, I heard um, you on Nash's podcast and you've kindly come on to the Bra and the Brave. Is that something that you intended to do, to tell your story, to put yourself out there or is it just happens organically through the, the sport? I think from a very early stage in my recovery journey, um, there's been a, a bit of kind of attention to the, the story and some of the kind of lessons that I've learned and and people generally come and kind of, they want to know. It's never something I've gone out to try and kind of sell or to really push upon people. I've never ever sell myself as a motivational speaker or something like that. Um, However, I recognise that I've had a fairly unique set of experiences and I've learned a lot of lessons from them that could maybe help others um, change the way they see the world a wee bit. You know, I, I often say I wish I could have gained the experience that I have without having to have lost my, lost my legs and lost some friends along the way. But unfortunately, that's impossible. You know, you have to learn these lessons through hardship. And also sometimes I, I feel it's very, very relevant to tell the stories of the brave men that I served with and to let people know what those young men actually go through and what they do um, and how exceptional they are because they're often forgotten, especially when the news turns its, its focus on the other things. Uh, the, those things last in my memory forever and uh, I think their stories need to be told. Yeah, 100%. I think if if you don't know someone you know that's in the army and the armed forces that you are removed from what the reality is, I think people like you telling the story and, and of the people and what actually goes on in the bravery, like you say, that what you have witnessed, um, I think that is super important. I think that to reach out to the younger generation to say this is this is the people that are putting their lives in the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're in a generation now of um, kind of the, the 
the brand and the, the influencer and can everyone's got a title and and a lot of people tend to be valued for firstly the footprint they have in terms of the people they reach and the louder they shout sometimes the more they get listened to um however i think uh, i feel very privileged to have known a lot of guys who are very humble you know they speak quietly but they they really step up when it matters that's something that's really special to you know those are the guys that you can truly rely on and they don't shout it from the top of mountains but in my eyes they're my superheroes and they're my idols and the more people know that those exceptional people exist um the better and the thing is that's exactly what you are and you will be for other people you're just no shouting about it <laughs> we're just doing your thing to be fair you've not got much time to shout about it since you're training like twice and three times a day I mean I'm very, very privileged to have come on my podcast you've actually had the time to do this but um I obviously listened to your story on Nash's podcast and just was like bowled over and um it's an absolute honor to speak to you Scott and I'm totally thrilled that you've joined the Brawbrave clan um, oh, I'm, it's, it's, I'm, I'm so glad we've been able to catch up and they shoot the breeze um, and yeah I feel like I'm following in a, a line of some some exceptional guests that you've had oh well I'm very I'm very lucky to be in the company of just some amazing people this is you know this was a total passion project but I think just stories in general are can be very inspiring for various reasons um, and everybody's story is relevant and, and relative to, to somebody but I think your story will just resonate with so many people so thank you so much for for sharing it on on my humble podcast no, thank you so much for doing it, and it's uh, it's it's great to capture these these stories and and, and really get to know the individuals. I've, I've I've been a fan of the podcast for some time, and it's a it's a privilege to be part that's of it. Lovely. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Right, I'm I'm seriously going to test you now. We're moving on to the thingamabobs. So these are just random questions that I like to ask each guest at the end of the podcast, just to get to know them a wee bit more. And I'm absolutely gutted that I didn't record at the beginning of this because, Scott, Mina, you are a bit of a musical theatre buff. <laughs> I need to get a question here about musical theatre. I can't believe in, like, 70-odd questions I've got nothing about musical theatre. What's going on? Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you did disclose that your favourite is Les Mis, is that right? It sure is, yeah. I, I, I've actually, I must admit, I've gone to see Les Miserables three times now. It's just, and it's still the same. And what always blows me away is the fact that you're going to see these shows that, the actors and actresses are doing day in, day out, but every single time they perform it, it's like their life depends on it. And the talent and the, the passion and the energy that they do it with is like exceptional. So I, I do, I must say, I really enjoy it. I've been really lucky to have seen a fair few shows, um, including like The Chariots of Fire, The Lion King, um, been to Broadway and seen Chicago. Uh, but yeah, I think what is, I think for the power of the music and The Lion King, it's as a close second are phenomenal and I hope they I hope they return soon and we're, we're missing them I know tell me about it well I had a musical literally about to go on stage with a 22 piece orchestra I was doing Oklahoma and uh, we're hoping fingers crossed that we can actually revive it next year so hopefully but um, one of my first questions that I picked out for you um, is on a musical theme but more generally just music what is your workout anthem oh, that's such a good question um, if you ask any of my teammates, they're going to say country and western. Like, I'm a huge country fan. Um, Are you? Like, who? Who are you? Oh, so I like some of the old stuff. I obviously, I love like Garth Brooks. I love Kenny Rogers and the kind of, the kind of oldies. Um, but recently, I love like Chris Stapleton, the Zach Brown band. 
Um, those guys, I Toby Keith, like, I just love that sort of music. Yeah, I'm a big country fan, but I must say, a guilty pleasure when I'm doing a really hard session as I okay. find some of the happy hardcore, old school, like DJ Sammy type bangers, like up in the back of the X5 bus with a bottle of wine tunes, you know, like they, they get you through the, the oldies. Um, they get me through some of the hard sessions and put a smile on my face. <laughs> yeah, like I was never into dance music. I was more kind of R and B and stuff. Like when I went out dancing and stuff, like clubbing. But uh, you can't even beat a bit of bits and pieces. Exactly. I I think bits and pieces is like the anthem of Glasgow. Like <laughs> it's like a little mini national anthem. Hi. It was something like Norwegian or something, and then we just totally adopted it and made it our own. Like we were like, this is ours. We're we're keeping this. Absolutely timeless. Doesn't matter what age you are. <laughs> The next one is, do you call it roasted cheese or toasted cheese? Who calls that? What's a toasted cheese? Are you talking about cheese toasty? Oh, mm. see, I call it roasted cheese. Is, what is, this, is that cheese toasty? Like a sandwich? Or is this a bit of bread with cheese on top? Yeah, under the grill. Oh, that's just cheese on toast. Is it? Aye. <laughs> toasted <Okay>. cheese. <laughs> Listen to the disdain in your voice, toasty. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've heard that cheese toasty, but... <laughs> so, what is it, cheese and toast? Cheese and toast. Okay, these are your questions. <laughs> uh, right, okay, I mean, we've just rhymed off the many talents that you do possess, but do you have any hidden talents? Oh, I was going to say you need to ask my wife, but <laughs> I don't think it should be so complimentary. Um, <laughs> I think a, a hidden talent I possessed. I, I was a bit of a singer when I was at school. Well, you know. Uh, oh, and, uh, and I can ride horses. So I actually used to do a bit of singing when I was at school. And before I got into sport, I was actually working full time uh, with horses and with wounded veterans and teaching them to work with horses. So I, I learned to, to ride pretty well, um, especially on a western saddle, so almost like the kind of way the cowboys would ride. So uh, I can ride a horse. <laughs> Love that. And play your country western music. Play my country well. music, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, right, here's, here's one. What's a moment in your past that you would want to relive again? Oh... There's, there's two answers here because I've got to say my wedding day and that was that was a phenomenal day and actually just having all my favourite people in the one place and all the whiskey in the world was pretty nice. I think um, a feeling that I'd like to, to replay more is is that that feeling you have in the kind of couple of hours after you've performed really, really well. So in the 20s, 2018 World Championships in Prince George, I had another fantastic result in my racing and I mean, across the finish line there just was nothing in the world that was ever going to take that away from me and that that feeling of just like I came and I've really delivered what I intended to I think for me that's the that's the enduring um kind of journey that you go on in sport you're always on a quest to, to grab that feeling again and it and it happens pretty rarely so I think that yeah there's, there's not much quite like that love it can you handle two more? Oh, absolutely. Um, favorite quote or like mantra? Oh, as there's, there's there's a lot of really good ones in my life. Um, I think I think one of the, my favorite quotes is uh, "Be be a good ancestor." 
and the philosophy behind it is plant seeds for trees that you'll never stand under. So, nice. so this quote comes from um, actually the legacy, which is the New Zealand All Blacks. And one of their philosophies is be a good ancestor. Don't be afraid to pass on a lesson that you'll never benefit anything from. Don't be afraid to be a good ancestor. Be a good person and yeah, plant seed for the trees that you, you might never stand under them. Brilliant. Oh, you're good at these questions. <laughs> And you'll know this one was coming, no doubt, if you've listened to the podcast. I ask every single guest, what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? <laughs> one, of, one of the best ones my, my best man came up with was, um, and it's the Canadians. My, my, my wife's Canadian and absolutely loves the Scottish patter. Right. So they, they couldn't believe the amount of words that we have for being drunk. <laughs> Stocious. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my best man's um, quote was, I am bevied, which I just thought was just marvellous. Um, but I, I have a few words that are better than three. Yeah, it yeah. comes up a lot. It does. It's a favourite. And it just summarises so much. So <laughs> words, words we have for being drunk and uh, and three. Bevied does not came up, actually, so that's a first on the podcast. Yeah, bevied's a <laughs> Well, sir, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And sorry for all the technical hitches that we had to, to make it happen, but we got there eventually. Uh, we, we persevered. I'm, I'm so glad we've been able to, to get together and, and get this done. It's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. I don't need to even say it, but I, I do wish you all the success in the world. But I, I know I don't need to because you're just going to smash whatever you're up to. You're going to smash it because... What you've achieved thus far is just incredible. And I think it is really important that you, you do tell your story because it's just phenomenal. And the word inspiring does get used a lot and it gets bandied about, but you are definitely inspiring. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Brawn and the Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.